0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and it's Saturday. It is time to go into the vault for an older episode of the show. This one originally published November 1st, 2022. And Rob, this is an interview you did with the author Brian Hoggard.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, this is the author of Magical House Protection, the Archaeology of Counter Witchcraft. Uh, just a really fun, fascinating discussion uh, about the various curios that have been unearthed in old buildings in, uh, in throughout Europe and also uh, in, in North America, uh, where things have been hidden in walls or under floors that have... uh, some purpose of protecting the house or the inhabitants from evil spirits. Uh, So this is a great one to listen to for the first time or re-listen to as we begin to get into the Halloween season. Let's jump right in.
0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind my name is robert lamb my regular co-host joe is out on parental leave but today i'm going to be chatting with independent researcher into the archaeology of folk magic brian hoggart he's the author of the excellent book magical house protection the archaeology of counter witchcraft which i highly recommend so without further ado let's jump right into the interview hi brian thanks for coming on the show Hi, you're welcome. So much of your work, and certainly your 2019 book, Magical House Protections, revolves around the archaeology of counter-witchcraft artifacts secreted, uh, in many cases, within historic homes. So before we get into the varieties and the particulars, what parts of the world and what time periods are we predominantly dealing with here?
3: Well, um, it's actually worldwide and... um I think it's been going on forever, to be honest with you, because um, humans seem to innately believe in the power of some kind of supernatural evil, and they fear it wherever they exist, whether it's sort of tribal societies or up to sort of quite sophisticated societies. And so it's been happening for as long as humans have been around, I think.
1: I want to come back to specifics in detail later, but but generally, what sorts of objects are we talking about? And where do we tend to find them positioned in a home?
3: Okay, so I normally work with uh, Western Europe, but also uh, receive reports of objects from much further afield as well. And, um, you know, within the home, we're talking mainly about hearths and thresholds. So wherever there's a fireplace or a chimney, that tends to be the main point of focus for a lot of this A lot of these objects and practices um, and that's because the chimney is always open to the sky because it kind of has to be and um, so it's also the most vulnerable point in the building for that reason so um, at night people fear things coming down the chimney and also uh, thresholds so windows and doors obviously are also points where the house could kind of leak essentially and um, they would often be protected and uh, yeah but literally any boundary point within a house any precious object or precious person or precious artifact can, you know, you can find that people have gone to some efforts to protect them.
1: I hadn't connected the dots on this till just now, but mentioning the the, the hearth as being a, an entry point. Uh, I guess we see this reflected at least distantly in traditions of Santa Claus entering a home through the hearth.
3: Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um in, indeed that goes even further than that really because yeah it is the idea of some energy coming down the chimney but uh but one of the types of objects that we often find in homes is uh, concealed shoes and obviously at christmas you you hang your stocking by the by the mantelpiece which is a similar kind of thing so you're kind of trying to trap some good energy instead of some bad energy
1: oh wow now early in the book you do a tremendous and uh, and seasonally appropriate i think job of describing what the experience of church may have been like especially to a pre-reformation english uh, commoner uh, it, it sounds incredibly spooky and and real and really not at all that comforting um <laughs> i was wondering if you might uh, sort of summarize just a little bit of the energy here
3: yeah so when uh, in the medieval britain when um, churches were still essentially catholic before the protestant reformation um, Church rituals were usually conducted in Latin so most uh, commoners or most parishioners wouldn't necessarily understand the language that was being spoken and in fact it's quite widely attested that a lot of priests didn't understand the words of the Latin rituals either and they learned a lot of them by rote so they just uh, they knew the sounds they knew how to um, emulate a Latin ritual rather than perform one and those rituals would take place behind a screen which was called the rude screen Which is basically a wooden screen that's been pierced in a decorative manner, so you could see behind, you could see through it, but not really clearly, a little bit gauzy. And um, and there would also be incense uh, being burned as well, and candlelight. So you've got um, a sort of spooky language that you don't understand, Latin, conducted in a kind of foggy, candlelit, misty environment, which is quite spooky, as you say. And um, on top of the rude screen, um, which was called a rude screen because it would have the rude on top of it, which is the image of Christ at Judgment Day, quite foreboding. And of course, a medieval church would uh, often be decorated with art, um, sometimes relating to the devil, sometimes relating to saints. So there'd be all kinds of supernatural imagery all around you, as well as the candlelight, the incense, the slightly opaque view of the ritual. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really quite a magical environment, and I think that that's how a lot of people felt about it.
1: Yeah, you mentioned in, in this section that, uh, for instance, one might not have like a clear idea of how the figure of Jesus factors into uh, everything, which, of course, is very easy to take for granted today, especially with among modern Christians and people in, in Western society. But uh, it's the idea here that you would have sort of the, the vague uh, structure of the Christian religion, and then... Uh, just the the, the the common individual is then having to sort of fill in the gaps with other supernatural ideas.
3: Yeah, to an, to an extent, I think it would vary quite a lot depending on how literate someone was or wasn't, mm. and um, and how inquiring their mind was as to whether they were actually asking their priest the answers to any of these questions or not. But yeah, I think this sort of um, overarching feeling that a god exists. And they would hear about Jesus, and they would hear about Mary, etc. But they wouldn't necessarily know what their relationship was. So I'm sure I've read an account before where someone someone was um, asked, you know, do you know who God and Jesus are? And they would think that oh, isn't Jesus God's uncle? And they would be really unclear about the um, familial relationships that that we might now think exist between them.
1: So how, how does the Reformation change this scenario?
3: Well. Technically it's the reformations, because there was like several attempts to kind of move it along. Um, But yeah, essentially it was about trying to dispel some of the superstitions that might have um, aggregated around belief in God and Jesus over the years. I think there was about a thousand years worth of um, people sort of augmenting what was going on in churches with their own ideas. And um, the reformations were supposed to be about stripping all that away and getting back to the actual text of the Bible. Um, particularly the New Testament, not the Old Testament, and um, trying to worship Jesus principally um, and also God, but, you know, with the whole Trinity, the Holy Ghost, and pretty much getting rid of Mary um, and getting rid of all the saints and all these other things that have kind of grown in importance over the thousand or so years um, before. So how does the the period of witchcraft persecution factor into all
1: of this? Um, Because I, I understand much of this takes place In post-medieval times, no matter how much we we might want to shove it back into prior centuries,
3: yeah, that's that's an interesting one because I think that belief in witchcraft and beliefs about witchcraft actually didn't really change very much during the period of witchcraft persecution. There were some new ones brought in, but essentially the the core beliefs about witchcraft were essentially the same, in my opinion. They just um, became magnified, and that was partly through the popularity of new pamphlets and literature and the printing press you know the advent of the printing press um and partly through i i guess um in a way i think the stripping away of some of the superstitious aspects or the um the saintly aspects as well you know where you could um appeal for help to particular saints you know all of that being stripped away post-reformation i think um meant that people had a bit more of a need to address supernatural feelings in their lives Uh, (laughs) almost And I think it's possible that um, witchcraft beliefs and worry about it were almost, um, they sort of came into the vacuum, if you like, created by the the absence of a lot of the things that people used to do pre-Reformation. That's a fairly contentious argument. It's not that simple. You know, it's probably Mm -hmm. more to do with the printing press than anything else. And the fact that um, sort of very salacious and exciting stories about witches and devils were being circulated in pamphlet form and then literate people, people who could read, would then, uh, you know, regurgitate these to people who couldn't. And um, and this kind of heightened awareness of uh, the fact that there could be more danger around than there was before concerning witchcraft.
1: So you, you discuss some of this in the book as being like the elite understanding of witchcraft, and and I guess ultimately demonology, right? That's, that's again, coming down through printed material. And then is it kind of like bumping heads and then meshing with ideas that would have been more commonly held among um uh, uh more common and, uh, and and less literate people
3: yeah yeah it's kind of um we get we get this kind of um very much history gives us more of a top-down look at what went on whereas archaeology tends us to give us a bottom-up more kind of look <laughs> at what went on and um and really um other than ralph merrifield before before me um and some of his colleagues who've been doing work but not published um, there wasn't really an awful lot of people looking at witchcraft from the archaeology angle, so so all we've ever seen really is from the history side top down and um, I think an awful lot has been neglected or missed for that reason and so you know these ideas like like for example I talk about concealed shoes again. Some of our earliest examples of that are from the 14th century but we've also got examples of it from the 1970s you know oh, wow. and so so it's been a, it's been a complete continuum you know, the witch, the period of the witch trials, as people think of it, came and went, but this practice has steadily been carrying on the whole time. You know, it's, you know, you can say that it had a period of magnification during the witch trials, yeah, but it's it hasn't gone away and it didn't leave, you know, <laughs> and it's, um, it's always been there. So the common people, if you like, the, the sort of illiterate people, maybe continue doing what they were doing, and then they started to hear about these apparently new dangers or more powerful witches or that there was some kind of panic going on. And it just raised everybody's fears. So there was always some fear. You know, there was general fear of the dark, general fear of um, the supernatural, especially particularly about around sleep, you know, because uh, how could you protect your house when you're asleep? So that's one of the big worries that people had. But, um, but you know, during the period of... Uh, the, uh, some people call it the witch craze, I don't really like that term but you know the kind of excitement about witches and um, obviously fear was heightened so um, people did more things to try and keep them away and um, that's when you know for example witch bottles were a direct in my opinion a direct response to um, to the witch trials to the period of heightened fear but, um, but the rest the, the, all the other things seem to have just um, become Magnified, if you like, more important during that time. But they'd always been there. Now, now you've, you've mentioned witch bottles, so that this might be a good time to,
1: to, to ask. Uh, what is a witch bottle? What would it contain, and and
3: where were they found? Okay, so um, witch bottles were... Um, there's, there's an awful lot of detail here. They were um, essentially German stoneware bottles, which uh, in Germany were known as Bartmann stoneware, nothing to do with the Simpsons. And okay. basically, um, Germans had this, the ability to make stoneware, which is this non-porous, really hard bottle, which in Britain we couldn't make. We only had earthenware. So, um, so basically when we found out about stoneware, we wanted these bottles. Yeah. And so they were shipped over by hundreds of thousands, usually filled with beer or wine and that beer or wine would be consumed, and then the bottle would either be cast away. But the thing is, because these bottles were so good, they'd often be reused again and again and again. But the significant thing about them is that they have a really evil looking mask of a man on it. Yeah, so they look quite anthropomorphic. So these bottles have a salt glaze, which gives them a kind of leathery skin-like appearance. And then they have this beastly looking face on the neck And then they have a big round belly, which often has a kind of um, armorial shield on it, which sometimes looks a little bit occult or a little bit kind of spooky. And sometimes as well, they're quite sort of um, petal-like, quite flower-like, which which resembles another one of the marks that often crop up in this uh, area of study as well. And so for that reason, you know, if you were going to do anything magical... You would want to use this bottle because it, it looks anthropomorphic it's quite a spooky looking bottle you couldn't imagine a better bottle for doing magic with put it that way if you want to, if you were sitting at home and you want to do some so anyway these bottles we quite often find them um underneath the floor sometimes up to a meter deep underneath them um, a flagstone in front of a hearth or directly underneath the hearth sometimes integrated into an ingle nook into the wall and um they're often upside down in the ground. We're not entirely sure why the upside down thing happens, but inside the bottles, this is when we x-ray them, they they often show evidence of lots of pins and nails that have accreted or aggregated and um, coagulated around the neck, where the, where the gravity is just taking them down towards the neck. And then when we open them and have a look inside, they've often got some liquid, um, a big lock of hair, sometimes some sort of thorns or other pins. Importantly the the pins and nails which are found inside are usually deliberately bent as well. And when I say deliberately we have assessed the angle of the bend and it seems like in many cases these nails and pins have all been bent around the same iron pole so someone's deliberately sat there and gone round lots of pins and nails before adding them into the bottle. So there's clearly an element of sort of ritual or like a quite a lot of effort goes into putting it together. And then of course you have to dig this really deep hole to, to put it down there. And so essentially what we've got Is an anthropomorphic bottle so it looks like a human and inside it we have um, the liquid it turns out through analysis is human urine and so we've got a human's urine in there we often also have nail clippings nail pairings in there a big lock of hair and then all these pins and nails that have been deliberately and meticulously bent before being added into the bottle which has then been sealed with a bung or a cork and then buried upside down Under the earth, covered over, and a big flagstone put on top of it. So it's quite a lot of effort, isn't it? Quite a lot of effort. Yeah. Right. And uh, what what it what I think is happening here is that because 50% of all of these bottles are found by the hearth or in the immediate vicinity of the hearth, so that we again we've got this focus on the hearth. And so the idea is, if something bad like a spell or an energy or maybe a demon or something like that is potentially travelling down your chimney trying to attack you, it's Plunging down the chimney, trying to find you, it detects this human-like figure that smells like you. It's got your hair in it. It's got your fingernail clippings in it. It's got your urine in it, and it dives down to attack you. And when it gets inside the bottle, it then gets impaled on all these dead pins, which you've deliberately killed one by one before putting them into the bottles. So there's kind of like the ghosts of pins there to work against the ghost that's trying to attack you, and so. There are some some bits of folklore that suggest that spirits and witches aren't very good at travelling backwards, so once they get into a spot they find it difficult to get out. So maybe there's an element of that, like a kind of trap as well. So like a trap slash impaling people, you know, a decoy that wow. has a trap within it. That seems wow. to be what's going on. But confusingly, there is there are some texts that relate, that talk about witch bottles that describe something different, right? so. There are several texts in the late 17th century that talk about this idea of boiling a witch bottle. That um, if you think you've been bewitched or if you know someone who's been bewitched, you can take a bottle and you can get them to urinate into it and you can add some pins and nails to it and boil it on a fire. You've got to bang it up and then boil it on a fire. And the idea is that this will, that the, the bottle will act as kind of a substitute bladder for the, you know, and by boiling it, you're causing pain to the witch. Because they had this belief that if you've been bewitched, um, there's something of the essence of the witch inside you as well. So so if you then urinate into this bottle and do something to it, it's going to have an effect on the witch. And uh, so the, the, the thinking is in these texts um, that excruciating pain is caused to the witch who will then come seeking you out and will come knocking on your door, begging for you to stop boiling the bottle. And in return, you can barter your freedom from the spe- whatever spell has been put on you. And uh, generally speaking, it says that if that fails, you should then bury the bottle. So that's interesting, but it's different to what we find in the buried bottles. Okay, so the buried bottles obviously have hair, which isn't mentioned in any of these texts. The texts also don't mention bending the pins to kill them, if you like, you know. So what we've got is two separate ways of working that are thought to be behind these two practices. The boiling thing seems to be depending on the idea that you can... uh, cause pain to the witch's bladder by sort of acting upon a substance that might be infused partly with the witch whereas the ones that are buried seem to be acting as a decoy and a trap yeah and I think that that practice the one where the bottles are buried actually resembles and has a lot in common with other practices like shoes and like some of the marks and all sorts whereas the one with the boiling seems to be well One of my friends who was studying that called Dr. Annie Thwaite, she was studying it for a long time and she called it the urinary experiment and saw it as a kind of pseudo medical practice that um, people at the time thought that supernatural energies were real and that this was a way of potentially removing them from someone. You know, they were sort of using medical theory, if you like, to try and remove the presence of a witch, whereas the one where you bury them seems to have more in common with folk practices that have been going on for a very long time. So I'm not sure, you know, they certainly both use the same type of bottle. They both emerge at about the same time, which is the third quarter of the 17th century or thereabouts, um, but two separate practices. And I wonder if, um, you know, you have the written one that's more about medicine and science and you have the, the other one, the buried one, that's like more going with the, uh, the real old school kind of folk magic to how, how to get rid of a witch. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's just just so so amazing and and, and so ha, ha, like very roughly roughly speaking like what what sort of numbers are we talking about in terms of surviving which bottles that have been recovered.
3: Um, since I last um, started counting I mean the, I think when I published there was about 130 odd bellamines uh, which is the German German type ones and there was probably another 80 or 90 of glass ones that I had on the file. And I wouldn't be surprised if the the German stoneware ones was easily in excess of 200 by now with the amount of reports. But, um, but you have to bear in mind that these things are only ever found when someone demolishes an old building or excavates under an old building. So there's probably a vast amount more that have been discovered that just weren't reported because these bottles are actually quite valuable. So you, know, you, can, sell, you can sell one that wasn't used as a witch bottle for potentially four to 500 pounds on an eBay. Um, and if it was used as a witch bottle, I've seen people selling them for up to £1,500. So, you know, so yeah, they're, they're reasonably valuable when it comes to uh, the black market. So I think a lot of builders and uh, homeowners, when they find these, they're, they're curious, but they also see a, a, an opportunity for making a bit of money. And, um, and so we don't know exactly how many there were, but I wouldn't be surprised if um, they were maybe 50 times more common than my figures suggest.
2: There's joy in every journey.
1: Now we've you, twice mentioned shoes, uh, so uh, uh, if you if you would explain um, uh, how do shoes factor into all of this? Because on one hand we have the witch bottle here, which uh, you know once once explained has all of these you know obvious occult uh, and supernatural aspects to it. But 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 shoes we we take for granted. Any number of us just have shoes probably piled towards the front of our house, and we don't attach any any kind of special importance to them.
3: That's right, and that's because uh, we have an amazing factory production system that makes them cheap and easy to buy. Mm. But um, once upon a time, they were um, you know, artisan-made things. And of course, we do actually still have a culture of the professional artisan shoemaker, uh, it still exists. And there's still people who care about the history of shoes and, and still make very expensive handmade shoes. But of course, once upon a time, that was the only kind of shoe you could get would be a handmade shoe, and they were quite expensive. And so they were repaired and repaired and repaired until you eventually could, wouldn't, um, you know, couldn't use them anymore, basically. So they were quite valuable in more ways than you can imagine now. But, um, but yeah, they are the, probably the most common um, object that's found in buildings is concealed shoes. They're usually concealed um, on their own. It's usually just one shoe. Um, in the old days, shoes weren't made to fit a left foot and a right foot. They were just the same and they would take the shape of the wearer's feet gradually over time. But these ones that we find, they're like as I say, they're almost always an odd shoe. I think there's slightly less than ten percent are found as pairs, and they're almost always extremely well worn. Because who would get rid of a brand new shoe with them being so expensive? Like like I said before, and also they then wouldn't be able to if they hadn't taken the shape of the wearer's foot. They couldn't perform the function which I um, give, which I suggest that they have, which is and not just me, other people too, but um, that they act as a kind of decoy, a bit like we were talking about with. The witch bottle that it's got some hair and some urine in it so it kind of fools any evil energies that are looking for you into thinking that you're there um it's the same idea with shoes um that an evil entity or a spell or something negative trying to get into your house is seeking you to cause you harm and it finds your shoe which might have been on your foot for many years and has taken every you know it's uniquely your shoe it wouldn't fit anywhere anyone else Coincidentally, this is also where the, the Cinderella myth comes from. You know the fact that shoes become a unique thing to someone's foot, and um, and yeah, so it so it then plunges down to attack the shoe as a decoy, and it and it attacks it instead of you. So it's um, essentially acting as a kind of lightning conductor. It's drawing negative energy away from you, which is great, isn't it? And um, the idea that it's kind of tra- trapping the energy inside it. Now, the idea that the shoe can act as a trap is weird, okay, but. <laughs> there is some kind of historical evidence for it. So there was a a 14th century priest from England from a little village called North Marston in Buckinghamshire. And um, he was, when I say he was an unofficial saint, I mean, he was never ever canonized by the Catholic church. So people regarded him as a saint, even though he wasn't actually one. And um, he is reputed to have cast the devil into a boot, which is a, a remarkable thing to do, as I'm sure you can imagine. But the interesting thing about John Sean is that even though he wasn't um, officially a saint, pilgrimages to his shrine for a period of about 250 years was the second most popular shrine in Britain and um, second only to Thomas a Becket at Canterbury Cathedral. In fact he was so popular that the, the monarchy in Britain stole his relics from the church at North Marston and moved them to Windsor so that they could benefit from the money that the pilgrims brought to come and visit um, his shrine and then those remains and relics have then been returned to North Marston when his popularity waned but the interesting thing is that the little pilgrim badges that people would pick up when they went to visit his shrine all of them show him holding a big boot with a little devil poking out of the top and um and we're talking um hundreds of thousands of people maybe even millions of people would have had a badge that showed a devil trapped in a boot yeah and uh not just that, but an awful lot of churches had imagery, obviously, to do with all of the saints. He was an incredibly popular saint. And so many, many churches would have had an image of John Sean holding a boot with a devil trapped in it. Um, so from the 14th century onwards, this was a really popular idea that you could trap a devil in a boot. And, um, and, and funnily enough, that some of our earliest examples come from that time. So back to the, the shoes themselves. As I say, sometimes you find them singly. Sometimes you fi- find them in large groups sometimes you'll find there'll be a void in a house just through through some sort of quirk of construction that people can drop a shoe down and for example the plough at Sittingbourne in Kent there was over a hundred shoes I believe collected from that building from four different deposition points and those shoes have been dropped into those voids over generations so subsequent owners of the building all carried on the same practice of putting old worn shoes down the same holes and um and you end up with this record of footwear over over the ages as well as um <laughs> evidence of people's desire to uh draw evil away from the people in the house
1: now what about dried cats
3: why dried cats oh the poor little cats i love cats so I, I would never do this to a cat and i would never advocate anyone ever does this to a cat this is a tradition from the past we don't do it these days so please don't go hiding cats in your houses people but um but yeah, it's it's really, really common throughout the whole of Europe um, and Britain and Australia, actually, and the USA. So we have examples from, from all over. There's also an example that I have on record from Canada, but I don't have so many records from Canada. I've also got a record from Chile, actually. So um, it's a very, very widespread. And uh, it seems to be, uh, earlier on I mentioned about um, people... Having been very concerned with who was or how was the house being protected while they slept, and so there's an element of this going on with cats because they're semi nocturnal, they are quite mysterious in their behavior. In certainly in the British Isles, there was um, a belief about the witches' familiar that was often focused on cats as well, so that kind of leans towards uh, how mysteriously people thought about them. Um, but yeah, essentially, they're benevolent little creatures that are in our lives, they help control pests and uh, but also we must also consider the fact that they breed like wildfire if they're not neutered and spayed as we do in the modern world. Um, so basically there were too many cats and they were semi-nocturnal, generally helpful and so people started to, they fell naturally into a helpful role essentially. So a lot of these practices, what one of the things you'll find in common with them is that people were thinking about how do we, how do we affect something that's happening on the supernatural plane as it were, okay? So most people weren't able to be supernatural. They weren't witches or wizards, yep. But there were these things happening to them that were coming from the supernatural plane or what they believed were happening to them from the supernatural plane. And so they had to find ways of affecting it, yep. And they had to find special little recipes and special little practices that would have an impact on those things so for example these old shoes that are no longer worth using no no long, longer worth keeping on your foot are essentially dead shoes so they've died they've flipped over to the other side so they're now effective against the other side against the supernatural realm if you like and then with the witch bottles you know you've got a big lock of hair removed from your hair or nail pairings clipped off these are parts of you that were attached to you and were considered to be alive which are now dead because you're and so they're now on the other side Acting as a kind of lure or bait on the other side, and then the same thing with these nails, and then we come to the point where, in that way of thinking, here is a cat that's alive, but friendly and can control pests. If we make it dead, if we flip it into the other side, we can hope that it continues that role on that side, yep, as a presence in the house. And so, what I think is going on is that. Um, these cats are being essentially kind of sacrificed, if you like, to the house to act as little protectors of the house while you sleep, because they're awake while you're asleep. And they're catching vermin. Um, They're looking out for things that might come in that might harm you. Like, you know, instead of pests, you know, exchange the word pests for spells, you know, negative energies coming in, you know, and uh, I think that's what people were doing. And there's also, um, there's a little bit of, I see, I think that idea that I've just expressed to you is probably the main one but but people have often thought about whether cats were killed as a foundation sacrifice that you give a life to the house so that it won't then take a life later by falling down on you and um, I once had a very brief discussion with Terry Pratchett about dried cats and that was that was his idea was that he thought that was what was going on Um, but I think it's more to do with this um, you know the role of a cat in death I think it's more to do with what I said to you earlier About how you know you take some of the qualities of the cat, and by essentially killing it but keeping it within the house, you've hopefully got a helper within your house who's going to even. Why would it want to help you if you've just taken its life, right? But but I think that that was thinking that was going on there, and um, we find them in all sorts of places. Find them like the first one I ever came across was actually in um, a village I used to live in, uh, which is weird because I'd moved away, and then the first report that came through my website was of just a few streets away from where I used to live. And a dried cat was found in, sandwiched in between some layers of thatch in a house. It was basically a, a 16th century cottage, but they think that the cat dates from hundred years later. Yeah, and it was squashed quite flat, you know, the way, you know, quite serious pressure had been put on it. There's no way it could have got there by itself. It had been placed there quite deliberately. And, um, but yeah, we find others that are sometimes strapped to floor joists you know, they literally could not have got there by accident. And there are others that I found, uh, not, not me personally, but there was another one found sandwiched between tiles and plaster in the roof of a church, clearly had been placed there by the builders. You know, and that's another thing worth thinking about. Some of, these, some of these methods and practices were put there by the builders and some were put there by the homeowners. So we sometimes, you know, when we're looking at an old house and looking at all the fines we get from an old house, we try to discern, you know, which of them were put there by the builders. And which were added later.
1: So, was there generally an idea that the builders were sort of on the side of the house and on the side of the occupants? Because I'm, I'm reminded of something I was reading about in in Chinese traditions. I believe this was from uh, a book by Philip A. Kuhn uh, about the Chinese sorcery scare of 1768. And in this one, it, a lot of it had to do with with written magical protections that were used during a, a during a home's construction. To protect against potential curses leveled by the actual laborers against, like the the owners or future occupants of a house.
3: Mm. That's in, that's that's an interesting one. i quite. You can send me that reference later. I'd like okay. to read that one. But yeah, um, but yeah, I think that generally speaking, um, in England, for sure, because that's where I tend to know the most about it. But um, in England, it seems like it was an additional service that the builders could provide or could offer. Okay. So say you've got um, two builders and you're trying to assess which one do you want to pay to give them the contract to build your house, you know one of them has clear expertise in marking the timbers in such a way that it will act as and you know that it will repel evil just through the timbers that have been put up there, you know, mm-hmm. and so you're gonna you're going to go with the builders that can help protect you in a supernatural way slightly more than you would another company that wasn't so good at doing that, um, yeah. So it's a, it's another service that some builders offered and. But it's a bit more nuanced than that because I think that you know you might have um, somebody who is the principal builder might employ a carpenter and a stonemason and they might both have individual practices that they could do and whether they would do them on that project or not might depend on whether they liked you or not or um, you know how skilled they were in that in that field so there's quite a few different you know elements at play here I wouldn't say it's necessarily as simple as one builder would give you the all-round service you know they'd give you their cat, the marks, the window, all this kind of stuff and I I think some of these practices were a direct response to people feeling that they'd been bewitched as well so that would have definitely come after um, a building had been put up but there were certain things that certain marks in particular and um, you know I do I do think that builders leave shoes for example and sometimes they include glass bottles sometimes empty ones in buildings as well as part of, um, you know, in addition to some of the other masons' kind of uh, traditions, like the topping out ceremonies and things like that. But um, but in terms of uh, specific counter witchcraft, there was quite a few things builders and their tradespeople could do.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride.
2: Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.
1: Now, if this is too big of a question, we can we can skip this one. Uh, but uh, I was also fascinated by the whole uh, topic of uh, horse skulls being included uh, in um, uh, foundations and in floors. Uh, because on one hand it makes sense that it would line up with some of the things we've already talked about here like the horse is a is an important animal and um and, and having an important role and in in, uh, for for for, for the, the the humans that are doing this but then there's this whole um, potential
3: acoustic angle right yeah it's i've been grappling with the whole notion of horse skulls and the different theories at play for quite some time i don't think i haven't quite finished thinking about it all yet but um but I think I've got more answers than I had before. Um, so when we were talking about cats earlier being um, nocturnal mm-hmm. and people worried about um, who was looking after their house when they were asleep, I think that, that horses play a role in that. Um, and it took me a while to, to realise this, but basically horses can, although they don't always choose to, they can sleep standing up and with their eyes open. So they can be in a in a sleep state. look like they're awake you know and they're and they are basically um in a shallow sleep they're ready ready for action ready to be alert for the benefit of the other horses that they are with who might just be um literally falling asleep on their back with their hooves in the air you know some of them are like that but there'll be one or two of them that can be awake in this kind of light sleep with their eyes open and i think that people knew that so this idea of horses as incredibly vigilant creatures was i think part of what's going on and then We also have um, the fact that if you take a horse's head and you deflesh it, to use a horrible word, um, a defleshed horse skull um, is a really dramatic looking thing. Um, I presume you've, there's a big tradition of using horses in the States, obviously, I presume you've seen a horse skull, you know, they are, they're they're quite, quite uh, impressive looking beasts. And I think that when, when they're in that state, you know, when it's just a horse skull, they, they seem to have almost a supernatural power about them. Um, you know, they take on a different persona. It's not like, um, you know, a dead cat is a dead cat, you know, whereas, whereas a a horse skull, as opposed to a living horse is a, a kind of supernatural thing. It looks different and it's regarded differently, I think as well. And, um, some of the ideas at play in counter witchcraft are about basically being scarier than something else. So you know, so if you've got something that's really scary, a lesser scary thing might be scared away by it. You know, like there's um, there's one tradition, for example, with rug working that I've heard about, where um, certain rugs that were put in front of the fire would often have a red diamond pattern on them. Also, like just a red diamond in the middle or in the corners or something. And some of the folklore around this is that a devil poking his head down the chimney would poke his head down the chimney and think, oh my goodness, there's already a devil in the house. I won't go interfering with this and would go go <laughs> get the other way to go and find the house that doesn't have a devil in it because the diamond is meant to represent this devil's eye. And I think in a way, this idea with the horse skull is that they are particularly frightening and quite large so they could actually intimidate and frighten away um, other things. And I think that the sort of proof of that is that horse skulls are used in some of these folk dance traditions which appear to be about scaring away spirits like the Mariluid and other, you know the certain other ones that, um, like the Obios and uh, what's the other one called the Hood and Horse as well you know these kind of dances and rituals that have these kind of horse-like figures that go dancing around and convorting around the countryside. And you know, with with the Mary Louid, for example, there's um, there's also a custom in that of sweeping the hearth and cleaning the hearth away with this figure that's a horse skull and a big cape, and um, and that again seems to sort of tune in with this idea of protecting the hearth as well. Um, so yeah, I think that the horse skulls, you know, and on top of that, there's all this ancient myth about horses as well, you know, and uh, the, the idea that. Horses were thought to literally tow the sun up, you know, mm-hmm. you know, at sunrise and and chariots of the gods almost, you know. And, uh, and they were also um, the way that people accessed the underworld sometimes as well. They, you know, you would ride your horse to Valhalla or, or it would take you to the underworld. There's all these really old ideas about horses as um, supernatural beings that um, had access to other worlds almost. Yeah, at the same time, they've got this really multi... Sort of, sort of multifunctional role, almost on a mythic level in human life, you know. And um, but ultimately, when we're talking about the period, this period of the witch trials, if we if we want to look at that period, for example, Mm -hmm. we're talking about animals that are broadly benevolent to humans. You know, we don't see them simply as eating animals. You know, although they were eaten and still are in some countries. But yeah, they were, you know, kind of a benevolent role in our lives, but also this kind of incredible vigilance about them and also this kind of fearsome aspect to them when they are in the shape of a horse skull. And um, in my book, I do cite one example from, I think it's 1897, where um, this is actually um, reported in a really good book about folklore in Cambridgeshire, where this building company were were essentially laying the foundations for a new chapel in um, Cambridgeshire. And they sent the builder's lad off to get a horse's head from the knacker's yard because um they had a very strong tradition of um placing a horse's head in the base of the foundations which at first you think this is a foundation sacrifice but it's not that simple because after they've poured some beer over it and they've all shoveled various bits of stonework and everything and earth over the top of it they then said that they were, they were doing this quite clearly to ward off evil and witchcraft you know so it's not it's not as simple as thinking foundation sacrifice appeasing local spirits they very clearly believe this was for warding off evil and witchcraft. This idea of including a horse's head in the base of a foundation trench. Um, in 1897, which, um, you know, is well into the industrial era. And, um, and we know that um, there are many examples of horse skulls and horse bones found underneath non-conformist chapels throughout all of Wales and probably much of much of England as well. Um, and these many of these chapels were built well into the 1940s, you know, and... Um, and yet we also know that horse skulls were concealed under, under dwellings in the 15th century because we've got archaeological records of them. Yeah. And that's the whole idea of horse skulls being concealed instead of the whole horse. So I'm not sure exactly when that happened, you know, cause um, the Vikings used to conceal whole horses or not conceal them, but bury them and have lots of rituals to do with them. But at some point between that period and the 15th century, it became much more about the horse's head or the horse's skull. But we're not sure exactly when.
1: Hmm. That's fascinating.
3: And confusing. <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. <laughs> no, no. Uh, it, now, is there is there also an idea that there might have been an acoustic benefit in some of these cases to having the, the horse skull under there?
3: I'm glad you brought me back to that, because I clearly wandered away from that topic. Uh, but yeah, so there there is this idea that... Um, somehow horses act as natural amplifiers or acoustic um, enhancers in buildings. So when people first started looking at the practice of concealed horse skulls, um, particularly in Ireland actually, a paper by Sean O'Sullivan, I think it was in 1945, um, but the reference is in my book if I got that wrong, but yeah he was asking you know what what was the reason for them concealing these horse skulls underneath them um, stones in front of the hearth in many of these cottages and the answer he got from many of these people was that it made the dancing sound better in the evening. You know, So when they were gathered together in the evening around the fire and they were doing some Irish dancing, it sounded uh, nicer by having a horse skull um, underneath uh, the, the stone. And then similarly in England, when they found 24 horse skulls beneath the floor of the Portway Inn in Herefordshire, which is in Staunton-on-Wye, this village, um, they said it made the fiddle go better, it made the fiddle sound yeah. better. And then in Sweden, for example, uh, when Albert Sandclef was, re- you know, researching horse skulls beneath barns, threshing barns in Sweden, you know, he came to the conclusion th- mostly through what people told him, that it made the flails sound better when they were threshing wheat.
1: <sighs>
3: and, uh, but, you know, I find it, I struggle with it a little bit because, um, you know, I'm a, when I'm not doing this kind of research, I am also a musician. I've been playing guitar for over 30 years i think i'm quite good at it actually but um but yeah i have a horse skull on top of the bookshelf behind my head right now and i also play guitar in this room quite a lot and i have certainly not noticed any kind of ringing or pleasant harmonious sound because of it um it may be that i need to attach the horse skull to a floorboard with a big screw in order to, to notice any benefit um i haven't yet tested that I let's let's just say that I'm dubious about the acoustic benefits of horse skulls, um especially because I'd say about 50% of the examples I am aware of are in locations where a lot of the sound that they could produce is absorbed by the earth that they're set in or they're in a part of the building that wouldn't you know sound wouldn't reach that part of the building you know so you know um so I'm a a little bit dubious about that and I, I think that a lot of the reasons why people gave this explanation is because it was um a way of saying that you weren't doing something heretical or superstitious. You know, if you said you're, you, were, you know, you're walking down the street with a pair of horse skulls under each arm and a, <laughs> the local vicar comes up to you and says, what on earth are you doing? Like, oh, it's, uh, it's to improve the acoustics <laughs> when we're dancing <laughs> in the evening. Of course it is, you know. Um, and I would say that probably a big clay bowl or something would be better at it. I mean, maybe it's more expensive. Obviously um, we used to have, you know our, our transport culture was completely dominated by the horse for centuries so there was an awful lot of available horse skulls you know you they maybe this was a use people found for them and maybe people really believed that there was maybe there is some marginal acoustic benefit that I'm not aware of but um but yeah I, personally I think that it be, that explanation began as an excuse for why someone is walking around with a horse skull trying to dig a hole into their house Um rather than because uh, they thought I desperately need to improve the acoustics in my house, and a horse skull must be the way I do that.
1: Now, as, as we've mentioned already, these artifacts tend to emerge during cases of demolition or renovation, uh, digging up uh, the ground beneath old dwellings and old buildings, etc. Et uh, and, and you also mentioned like the black market and so forth. What what is the appropriate course of action? Uh, that you would recommend if anyone out there is engaged in construction renovation demolition etc if they find something that 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 could conceivably be part of one of these traditions what what should they do
3: the perfect thing to do is first of all as soon as you see something emerge from the ground or emerge from a wall is just pause and take loads of photographs from every angle (laughs) just sort of really really record it as well as you can maybe do a bit of video as well you know write down when you found it, what you found, yeah, before you even touch it, you know, and then um, ideally then contact someone who is interested in it or is an expert in that field. Obviously I would like you to consider me if you find those things, you know, and I'd like to give you some advice or maybe look at some photos and have some input about what you've found. And then the ideal thing, because obviously I live a long way away from many of your listeners, you know, the ideal thing is that you find some way of keeping it in the house after you've recorded it as well as you can. Keep it in the house and keep it where 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 you found it, if you can. Um, some people find solutions like they'll put a little window so you can still see it and appreciate it, and it's a kind of oh. fun talking point in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, I know lots of houses where they've done that with dried cats as well, actually, even though they're a bit gruesome to look at. <laughs> lots of people still like to keep them. Obviously, something like a dried cat, it's, um, it's organic and it's it could rot if it becomes damp so you've got to think more carefully about what you do with that and a lot of people do end up disposing of them for that reason but you know if you can keep it dry and keep it visible or just 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 conceal it again just put it back in and forget all about it um, like the first one I ever came across went straight back in the thatch after I'd recorded it and it's still there as far as I know so that is the best thing to do that's very by far the best thing to do um wherever you live that's the best thing to do the shoes by and large, they're not gonna be worth anything. So, um, you know, record them and put them back. You're not gonna lose any, any money. You're not denying yourself some kind of riches by re reconcealing re- a shoe or a cat, you know. Um, the ones that, that people assign more monetary value to are the witch bottles because pottery, you know, nice old pottery with clear witchcraft, uh, you know, connections is very interesting but what I would say to you is sell it to your local museum you know your local museum will love to own it and I'm sure would make you an offer if you have a history you know local history museum and um, just make sure you offer it to local historians or archaeologists after you've recorded it and let them buy it off you don't put it don't just put it on the black market because someone will buy it and its provenance will be lost and no one will know where it is forever after so that's my only request: is just record it as well as you can. Share that information, and if you're going to sell anything, sell it responsibly. Sell it to someone who's going to care about that object and care about its relevance and its context in your local historical environment. Now, in
1: some cases, uh, I think you mentioned in the book, the individuals who find these uh, these objects then kind of maybe buy into the uh, supernatural ideas around them uh even as uh, as modern um you know as residents of
3: the modern world yeah in in modern parlance you you could say that people kind of freak out a bit when they find, when they find these things <laughs> in, the, in their houses um so in in england um most of the houses where these uh, objects like this are found are usually very historic houses usually quite desirable usually quite expensive houses so you, So in modern times, usually the people that live in these houses are quite wealthy or professional, you know, and usually consider themselves to be quite serious professional individuals. So we've got kind of quite a lot of um, lawyers, you know, academicians, you know, people like that. And um, these are people who often don't even don't think they're superstitious or have any supernatural beliefs at all. And yet when they find these objects in their houses, they want to know what they are, first of all, and they'll contact someone like me and they start to learn more about it, not just from me, but from you know other literature online or from friends or whatever and then they start to get really 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 worried that they are that they're disturbing some form of protection and that whatever evil that these things were protecting against might come back into their houses and they're often really frightened of for example a shoe being taken away from the house or a cat being moved or a bottle being broken or something like that they feel that um some dark energy that was being held at bay by this thing might suddenly re-emerge. Now obviously when you when you look at the um, way people used to use these things it was usually in a specific response to them feeling bewitched. So the chances of that same cause of the harmful energy, the same witch still being alive and transferring that harmful energy onto you is almost zero. But people for some reason feel that um, this is going to happen to them and they get incredibly worried um, I remember one one house where a witch bottle was found we persuaded the guy to let us analyse the witch bottles, so we were going to take it to university have it x-rayed and have all the contents analysed and it took a lot of persuading to get him to do it and this was for a, um, an English TV programme on BBC2 called History Detectives mm-hmm. um, he he reported the find because he found it really interesting and as part of the research you know, myself and my colleague, Dr. Alan Massey, we, we often would investigate um, bottles like this and um, the production team and us, we had to work on him for ages to allow us to take it away. The whole time it was away, he was ringing every day, is the bottle okay? When's it coming back? When's it coming back? I need it back in the house. Really, really felt desperately worried about it. And when it did come back to the house eventually after the analysis, um, he wanted it to be reinterred and he wanted me to do it because I was the first person he retort- reported it to. And so I agreed, but when I got there, what I didn't know was that he and the production team had um, employed a group of nuns to pray <laughs> around me while I was lowering it into the hole. Um, so that was a, a startling end to that little bit of TV work. But, um, but yeah, it just shows how strongly this guy felt about it. He really wanted um, the thing to go back where it had come from. And he felt that it needed some kind of religious blessing in the process as well to make it safe. It's fascinating. It really makes
1: me think about, uh, you know, in, in early on in the book, you also, you mentioned, like, the different sense world of being in a house uh, in uh, in historic times. You know, everything's quieter, and I guess maybe you've, you you hear all the, the sounds or potential sounds a bit more, but then also just thinking about our modern relationship with, like, the spaces between our walls or the spaces underneath the floor. It's, there's the things we know, like, we, we tend to know or assume there are not spirits or demons under there, but we we don't know for sure that there's not uh, a mouse uh we we know there are wires and uh and pipes uh under and through our house and we have at least some level of understanding of how those things work but then also maybe some 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 empty spots in our understanding concerning say electrical wiring
3: yeah it's uh it's it's really interesting i mean i i would say that um that people in in the past often used to feel a bit like our, our children do now you know so you know you've got a child going to sleep that, that fears there's something under the bed or something you know hiding in behind a cupboard or something like that you know I think that it's not quite the same I, I mean I don't I'm not saying that people had beliefs that were just like children but if you imagine a more mature version of those beliefs you know that there there's, there still is a belief in magic there still is a belief that there are some entities and some things around you that can harm you but you can't see them and you haven't got the power to do anything about them unless you learn some of these practices. You know, only witches can maybe do something about these things or white witches. You know, the village cunning person, for example, who's got control over some supernatural uh, powers could maybe manipulate some of these things. But but you can't. But all these things are around you. And so I think that some of those fears that we you might remember from being a child um, basically carry over into adulthood as... Um, uh, as a legitimate belief that everybody shared, you know, um mm-hmm. I really do think that um even as recently as the early twentieth century in some rural areas, beliefs like this were absolutely normal and um and people had very sophisticated responses to them, including the practices I've mentioned, plus others
1: now this is not uh, an example that I think has any supernatural aspects to it, but I was wondering. Uh... Uh, I'm not sure if this is a feature of homes in the UK or not, or if this is just a thing in the States, or if this is uh, uh, found throughout the world, but uh, you look at older medicine cabinets sometimes, and there'll be a slot in the back to dispose razors down, like uh, shaving razors. and uh, I, I couldn't help but think of that uh, now and again uh, whilst, uh, whilst reading the book as being you know, a place where we, we put things that maybe have some sort of connection to our physical body. And they, they also reminded me of the bent uh, nails a bit, the bent pins uh, as being these, uh, you know, these, these bits of iron or, or, or metal that are, that are no longer useful.
3: Yeah, I've seen, um, I've seen some lots of examples of those. I can't remember the name of the Facebook group, but there's a, a group about things found <laughs> hidden in walls and everything. Oh, yeah. And um, a lot of the examples from the states are where people have bought a really old house and there's been a, like a medicine cabinet and they found this great big mass of razor blades all behind the plasterboard, you know. Mm-hmm. They've all been pushed through this slot and just been allowed to just sit there and rust away behind the, behind the wall. And yeah, it's very similar, isn't it? You know, you can see why... Um, it's, it's, it's a similar idea isn't it you've got this this thing like you say closely associated with the body it's then been disposed of behind the wall it's very sharp you know it's this sharp thing where supernatural you know it's not going to look there anymore is it because you've got all these dead mm-hmm. sharp things and it's very reminiscent of the belief in knife blades and um, things that used to be found underneath sills and sometimes under door lintels where um there's there's a you know we've talked a lot about this idea that things can be sort of killed in order to be activated on the supernatural plane and that would the same would apply to all your kitchen utensils you know if you've got a broken knife it now is activated if you like Mm -hmm. and it is now a a useful form of supernatural defense if you were to secrete it beneath a windowsill or pop it um above a door lintel and so it's very similar there's kind of there's definitely a resonance there isn't that yeah
1: finally, as, as both a witchcraft archaeologist and a musician, is, do you think there's a shortage of witch bottle mentions in songs about witchcraft and wizardry? Or are there or are there some great examples out there that I just don't know about?
3: Are, are you also a musician? Are you going to rectify this situation? Oh, no, I, okay. I, have, I have no ability to, to, to rectify it if, if there is a lacking... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think though I, I don't know of any um, I'm sure that there are some f- little folk poems that reference the idea of uh, protecting against witchcraft but I'm not aware of a good song especially a rock song which is my, my world mm-hmm. about witch bottles but um, but I do th- I do know there is, there is a metal band called Coast or Ghost but with a K in the front instead of a G and I know that they've started writing some crazy songs about um, counter witchcraft so there may oh, be okay. a witch bottle song coming from them soon.
1: Excellent. Well, b- before we close out here, uh, I, I imagine that we have uh, perked a number of listeners' curiosities about this whole topic. Can you tell uh, our listeners how they can follow you, uh, the websites uh, or social media accounts they can go to uh, to to, uh, to learn more about
3: this study? Sure. So, um, on Twitter and Instagram, I am there as Folk Magic Man as one word, um, but on Facebook and on my website it's a little bit more difficult to uh, convey without seeing it but uh the the domain is aperturepios which is you can probably share a link can't you in your podcast yes. but yeah mm-hmm. aperture that's probably the best way to do it but it's uk or or.com and um the same thing on facebook it would be forward slash aperturepios um but yeah that's where it all is
1: Excellent. Well, thanks for taking time out of your day to chat with me here. This has been, I've, I've enjoyed it tremendously, and I am sure that our listeners are going to enjoy it as well. I've enjoyed it very much too. Thanks again to Brian for coming on the show to chat. Again, the book is Magical House Protection, The Archaeology of Counter Witchcraft, and it's available in physical and digital forms wherever you get your books. We only had time to discuss really a fraction of what is explored in the book, so if this topic fascinates you as it does me, pick it up. Thanks as always to Seth Nicholas Johnson for producing the show, and if you want to reach out, simply email us at contact
2: The first time, every time, owe your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road.